Good afternoon. Last night, I, for the first and probably the only time in my life, attended um, the celebration ceremony for the reception of a Nobel Prize. Um, this was uh, the prize given to uh, Michael Kramer, along with uh, Abjit Banerjee and Esther Duflo, uh, for economics on Monday night. And I was there because I'd worked quite a lot over the last few years with his wife, Rachel Glenister, who was one of the founders of Poverty Action Lab at MIT. And um, what, <laughs> I will say that it's, if you if you if you have any ever any any anxieties about um, underachievement, being at a Nobel Prize ceremony when you find out that the date of birth of uh, the the person who received the Nobel Prize for the Nobel Prize is within one month of your own, that's that's that's, that's pretty savoury, you know. If, he, if only he'd been born like one year earlier, that'd still be time. Um, but anyway, he was um, he was saying his thank yous to his wife, which you would expect because they worked very closely together. And he was also saying his thank yous to everybody in the room. And these weren't politicians' thank yous. This wasn't, you know, this wasn't a victory for me. This is a victory for you all. It's, it wasn't one of those false, modest uh, claims. I suddenly realized that everybody in the room had been involved in some way in that's this sort of work, in the work of either doing RCTs or reading RCTs or noting the data or allocating money based on the data. And, and everybody in that room was committed to the principle of evaluating what works in a very rigorous way for the benefit of some of the most poor people in the world. And I suddenly at that point felt very proud. This was a, a proud moment for me, which I didn't expect to feel at all. And I think I just wanted to convey that to you as well, because I, I think that everybody in this room to some extent, to some small extent, shares in that Nobel Prize. He, he was really giving that Nobel Prize to the people who have created not just a few academic papers, but actually a movement. So I think it's something for us to both, for us to all share in. Now, having said all of that, and having approved of randomized controlled trials, it's another thing to have to justify your existence, not based on whether you've got good intentions, whether you're doing good work, whether you're efficient, whether you've got a nice team, whether you're, you know, whether you're honestly intending to generate good results, but your, your, your value is assessed simply in terms of a few very specific numbers. That's a very, very sobering experience. And um, so I want to give you a, a sense of some of that experience and what, what that was like for Development Media International, the organization that I, that I run. Let me just start with a couple of numbers which underpin... Um, what we do. So this is a, a list of the major causes of death in 2016 um, and cardiovascular diseases at the top and natural disasters at the bottom. Now, if you are omnipotent, and I'm sure there's nobody in this room who would not aspire to being omnipotent, if we could do anything we wanted, wanted to, what would we do? Maybe we would try and stop all wars. Maybe we'd try and, try and stop all murders, all terrorism. Well, let's just look at that. Stopping all the murders in the world would save 390,000 deaths. Stopping all the wars in the world would save 115,000 deaths. And stopping all terrorism would add another 34,000 to that. So you've got over 
half a million deaths, which sounds like a lot, even though it's completely unachievable. All the malaria deaths in the world alone amount to over 700,000 deaths. All the diarrhea deaths total over 1.6 million, and all the pneumonia deaths, lower respiratory infections, total almost 2.4 million. And these are something we can do something about. So that's why DMI exists. It aims to use mass media to do something about things we can do something about, focusing very tightly on those three things, on malaria, diarrhea, pneumonia, three of the biggest causes of death amongst children under five. We run uh, very large mass media campaigns. We broadcast very intensively, sort of radio, television, mobile phone, broadcasting on average 10 times a day, 365 days a year. We work in 10 countries and we focus mainly on child survival, but we also do some early child development work and some family planning work. But does it work? Um, there is fairly good evidence. There's lots and lots of before and after evidence showing that, you know, if you do a campaign and at the end of the campaign, you've got some better results. But this is all before and after data and you above all audiences know the weaknesses of that sort of data. So proper, rigorous, randomized controlled data for the mass media sector is almost non-existent. There have been four randomized control trials done. They were all done in the United States. They all failed. And the problem was insufficient exposure. You can easily do a campaign in Chicago and LA and Cleveland and New York and not do it in Miami and five or six or ten other cities. That's easy. But to do that, you have to leave out NBC, ABC, CBS, Disney, all the national radio and television stations. So you're doing a mass media campaign whose only real value, the really big value of mass media, is that you reach millions or tens of millions of people at a time. You're doing it with two hands behind, tied behind your back because you haven't got those mass audiences. So it's not a real trial of what mass media actually does. The, the method, the RCT method, gets in your way. It's never been attempted in a developing country. Now, and as a, as a result, mass media has really been confined to the periphery of public health. I'm doing a tuberculosis campaign. Maybe we should do some mass media on the edge. Maybe we should do some extra stuff. It's not really seen as a core component of public health. So we tried to remedy this in two ways. First of all, we developed a saturation theory that we published in The Lancet, and it, it, it's very crudely, it's about broadcasting 10 times a day. It sounds extremely crude, and it, it pretty much is. It's just the principle, if you want to change behaviors, it's not about doing a finely crafted spot and broadcasting once or twice. You have to hit people with it 10 times a day. If you hit people, if you hit the audience 10 times a day, you'll probably get any individual two or three times a day. And we also found this discovered this country, Burkina Faso, which is a unique country. It's from West Africa, as you all know, I'm sure. Um, uh, next to Ghana, Niger. Um, but the unique thing about Burkina Faso is that the national media reaches only about 5% of the population. They took a political decision to broadcast almost exclusively in French. And in Burkina Faso, they speak all sorts of languages. And people prefer to listen to their own local radio stations in their own local languages. So that means if you broadcast in these zones, which you can see up there, the, the blue zones are areas where we did broadcast and the red zones areas where we didn't broadcast. They represent the range of local FM radio stations and they do capture pretty much all of the audience. So we're, we're now doing a randomized control trial based on reaching 
pretty much all of the people who actually listen to the mass media. And so we did it broadcasting in seven areas with seven control areas. We were broadcasting for 35 months, 365 days a year, 10 spots a day, plus two hours every night, and we're doing it in six languages, and we're focusing on malaria, diarrhea, and pneumonia. Let me just give you a little feel, an anecdotal feel, for how the campaign worked. Mori <laughs> Um, so that film, in a way, captures that there's nothing more important than a child not dying, right? At the same, at the same time, we need to know that it affects more than one child because what we're about here is working out whether this is an efficient way of saving children's lives. This film is illustrative, but it's, it's absolutely not enough. And so we had to do the survey. Now, we had an enormous problem that when we first got the survey results, it didn't, we, we couldn't detect a fall in mortality. And that was because the survey was powered. I mean, for st- statisticians here, the survey had the, the power, an 80% power, to detect a 20% fall in, in mortality. A 20% fall in mortality is huge. And it wasn't that we were, I mean, we, we were ambitious, but um, there was no way of powering any study in the world more better than this. With unlimited funds, with a billion dollars worth of funds, we could not have devised a design that would detect uh, uh, mortality reductions of, of, of certainly of not less than 15%. It was impossible. There's no country in the world you could do that. And so this was an enormous problem. We, we, you know, It was not only difficult enough to manage this project where we were broadcasting 70 hours a week of radio plus 10 spots a day, working in six languages, trying to cope with all sorts of interventions in our control areas and all sorts of things. That was a managerial challenge, but we sort of got through that. But then this challenge, 
was, was, was pretty sobering. And thankfully, we were saved by our second line of defense. The, the other thing that we'd nominated at the beginning of the trial that was going to be our, the, our, our major result was the administrative data that we had from the health centers themselves. Now, let me show you these. These, these are, this is the data that actually comes out of health centers in Burkina Faso. And it's data, data from 600,000 consultations. Now, you'll see, I'm going to, walk over here you'll you'll see that the scale here is the number of um consultations per month so th and you'll see there's a lot it goes up to 15,000 consultations in one month so that's a lot of consultations and and this is the time period going along here and the campaign started here so you'll see the the solid line is a num number of consultations in the intervention clusters and the dotted line is the number of consultations in the control clusters and you'll see they're pretty much together um, before the campaign starts and then you get a separation um, as the campaign starts and, and, and a, a widening gap certainly in the first year and also in years two and three and when you when you do time series analysis on that data and you basically compare the ratio of those two lines you end up with uh a 56% increase in malaria diagnosis and treatment in year one, and then a 37% increase in year two and a 35% increase in year three. And, and, and this, you can see because this data follows the, the malaria seasons, you can see those lines that it, it, it looks like good data. It, it, the, 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 the lines sort of follow each other. Uh, and, 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 and when you do those statistical tests on it, it, it really is pretty robust. Um, and we have the same data for uh, pneumonia. So we have a 39% increase there. And we have similar data for diarrhea diagnosis. And we have a 73% increase in there. And interestingly, in, in years, year three, it went up from 73. It went up to 107% increase in year three. Um, so this was great. This was the first time ever that mass media had ever been shown to change behaviours. There is no data in the entire advertising world or the entire epidemiological world that actually shows that mass media changes behaviours. Now, to show whether it saves lives or not, we had to use a thing called the Live Save tool. Oh, let me just show you one other piece of data, which is that there was no change in upper respiratory infections. We didn't campaign on upper respiratory infections. This is coughs and colds. These don't matter. These aren't going to kill kids. So, um, and it was very reassuring then that, it, it, that the data showed that, that we hadn't just simply driven everybody to the health centres, no matter what they got, that, they, that when they actually came to the health centres, they had come on the things that we campaigned for, which was malaria, diarrhoea, pneumonia. So when we put this through list, it's called the Live Save tool. It's the gold standard in epidemiology. It's, 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 it, what it does is if you, you, you can input into it, if I've increased breastfeeding by 30% in Angola, how many lives will I have saved? So we could input in um, the, the figures that we had for malaria, diarrhea, and pneumonia, plus there were, there were some other figures as well, and uh, derive how many lives have been saved. So, so during the trial, we reckoned that we saved 3,000 lives. And then when you, when you scale up the campaign, which, we, which we're now doing in Burkina Faso and in Mozambique, you'd save 10,000 lives in Burkina Faso and, and 21,000 lives in Mozambique. And the cost per DALI, I don't know if you're all familiar with DALI, it's Disability Adjusted Life Years, you probably are. Um, the cost per DALI ranges from 7 to $27. Now that's significant because... When you're 
when you're doing these campaigns, I mean, we're, we're broadcasting information, but it goes into thin air. This is radio programs. This isn't a hospital. There's not even staff. Um, it, you can't really see it. And hence, people are somewhat skeptical about the work that we do. And, and, and in a way, we have more to prove than most people because we're not, you know, uh, you, if you do, malaria bed nets are proven a cesarean section even though there's no rcts for a cesarean section you can see that it works you can see that the mother lives and the child lives you know you wouldn't dare do an experiment on that but you you could see that very very clearly mass media going into the airways is it worth spending money on is it worth spending money that obviously could be spent on other things um so but because we were able to calculate the cost per dally um we were then able to compare it to other child health interventions. Now, you can't read this table, but it's just, it's an, it's an excerpt from the Disease Control Priorities Project. This is the Bible of health economics. And what they do in the Disease Control Priorities Project, they, they compare, um, the evidence for different child health, well, lots of different health subjects, but in this case, child health interventions. And, and they, they use a logarithmic scale. So you see it goes from, one dollar to ten dollars to a hundred dollars to a thousand dollars to ten thousand dollars. So they're, they're squeezing, they're squeezing the uh, you know, so you can see it all on one chart. And the, the costs range from the very cheapest thing, which is a artisanate for malaria, up to uh, gender training for intimate partner violence. It ranges from seven dollars to two thousand three hundred dollars. And we come in around there, near the bottom. Um, it, it's very difficult to say. You know exactly what number this ranks. These are really orders of magnitude. Uh, when you're comparing RCTs from different countries, you you really can't say definitively this is number two, this is number three, this is number four. That's not it's very scientific. But what you can say is that mass media comes at the at the very cheapest end of um, of, of public health interventions for child health. So. This is reasonably satisfying. This is we're, we're, we're very pleased with this. It does, in a way, confirm what we suspected that mass media is is just a vehicle. It's a vehicle for human knowledge, and human knowledge, as we all know, most of you in this room are not well simply because you go and see doctors every week. You're well because you know stuff, uh, and you know when to see a doctor. And um, and so we try to put human knowledge and and mass media as a vehicle towards human knowledge right at the centre of public health. I won't say it didn't cover the cost. It took us five years to do the trial. It took us three years to raise the money for the trial. It took a couple of years to analyze it afterwards. It was extremely expensive. It was, I've got gray hairs as a result. It was, you know, it was an ordeal. And we've done, you know, some other trials since then, which have been rather easier to run. Um, But, uh, that was our experience anyway. I just wanted to share that with you. Thanks. So I really appreciated that your presentation had a lot of details in it. Yeah. Um, and that was really great, but there are some sort of bigger picture things that I'm wondering about as well. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, sort of do you have any like principles that guide how you staff your organization? And is that different here versus like in the locations and interventions? Yeah, two different principles, two very different principles. We, we staffing is huge. Um, 
your an, org- an organization is simply a bunch of ideas and a bunch of staff. That's all it is. And so nothing that we do can be done without the people that we recruit. And our criteria in London for any job is smart, nice, and really wants the job. Those are the, it, it, it's as simple as that. I mean, obviously, if we're recruiting epidemiologists, a PhD will be helpful, but, but it still boils down to smart, nice, and really wants a job. In a developing country, it's very different, and we don't go on paper qualifications at all. It's very easy when you're in somewhere like Burkina Faso to simply steal staff from the other NGOs, and it's this small group of elite people that have got master's degrees who, who go from NGO to NGO, and it's really not a good way of building the capacity of a country. Um, what we did when we were working in Burkina was to, um, we advertised, when we did town hall meetings and we went to schools and went to, to community centers and we said, look, we're interested in you. You don't have to have any qualifications at all. You do have to be able to write French and your application form will not be your degrees. Your application form will simply be a script that you're going to write in French on this subject. And so we got 600 applications and we tested about 80 of them and we recruited about 15 of them. And, and some of the, you know, one of my favorite scriptwriters was, had been a security guard. He'd, he'd been, his father died when he was 11 and he had to go out to work. And, and yet he was talented and he had no way he'd go to university and get those qualifications, but he was great. And so I, 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 I believe in that as a way of, you know, trying to get people not just using the, 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 the very small circle of, of people that we That's fantastic. often can use. Yeah, thank you. Um, so we just have a minute left, but you did mention that there were some trials that you've done since the mm. more challenging ones that have given you maybe fewer gray hairs. And I was wondering <laughs> if there were any of those that you just wanted to like give little snippets about or add on to. Yeah, we've just finished a randomized control trial with Rachel Glenister, the, 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 the wife of Michael Kramer. Um, and she was the PI on this, and it was on family planning. And we haven't published these results yet, but they've... It was a much, uh, she's excellent and, um, it was a much easier trial to do and it's come out with a very simple clear cut result that we improved the modern contraceptive prevalence rate by 17%. Um, so th- that's, that's good. Um, we're happy with that and I think it has quite major implications for how family planning campaigns are uh, conducted and we are just about to start a, an RCT on early childhood development which is the idea where you, you can teach parents to stimulate their children before the ages of, of three years old because those neural connections that they make in their brain if they're not made by the age of three they're not going to be made so that's that's something that, again that we're, we're we're hoping if that works we'll be able to improve you know the iq of a generation if you like yeah great that sounds like amazing work all right um so roy is going to be having office hours from 4 30 to 5 in the queen vault if you want to ask him some follow-up questions Um, And that's all we have time for now. But thank you so much for this presentation and for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you.